Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 16, which I've numbered incorrectly on my slide, I just noticed. But it is, in fact, session number 16 of Till We Have Faces. Um, and tonight, uh, we get to the big confrontation between the Queen and Ansit, Bardia's wife. Um, perhaps we will get beyond that and uh, look at Orwell's experience in the Temple of Ungit uh, as well, but we'll, you know, we'll see. We'll see how far we go here. Um, so, remember, let's remember where we are coming from, like what's happening here still in the first chapter plus um, of book two. Remember that um, Orwell is describing the process by which her change of heart came about. Um, she says at the very beginning of chapter two that, in fact, by the time she had finished writing book one, um, she already had been um, experiencing changes of her own heart. Um, in fact, she had been, well, I was going to say she had been rewriting the past backwards, which is kind of true by rewriting the past um, that is, by writing down the story of what happened, um, it did, in fact, change her, right? Um, so it's kind of another version of uh, rewriting the past, thinking of her comments about that before. But, of course, at the same time, it helped her to realize that she had been rewriting the past, attempting to rewrite the past backwards for a long time, and she was confronted by the reality. Um, and so that trend that we had noticed of her sort of withering honesty, um, of her confession of her states of mind and motivations and thoughts uh, throughout, um, before, during, and after <clears throat> the psyche um, process, the psyche experience, um, she was um, herself being confronted, right? It was like in the process of writing the book, she had unveiled herself to herself, right? Uh, and if you think about it, that image of unveiling is very much what um, uh, it certainly can be used as a metaphor for what she was doing throughout, right? She was saying she is going to she is going to bear her face, her experience, um, to you know to the public to her reader, to allow them to judge. She is calling the gods uh, to the stand, right? That the gods might be judged. But of course, what she finds in the course of doing that, in the course of assembling her um, indictment against the gods, is that she has to bear herself. Um, and that is the... Um, uh, that is the... Um, the really transformative operation, right? But that, she says, was only the first stage. Um, and in some ways, only sort of the preparation um, for the things that happened afterwards. And so she's been talking about the, um, uh, the other things, the other sort of dominoes that have been falling. That's not her metaphor, right? Um, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the blows that have been struck at her. And of course, her dominant metaphor has been surgery, 
right, has been that she has been feeling that the gods have been operating on her. Um, and again, you talk about vulnerability. You talk about exposure, right? Um, that's sort of the next step to not only have the veil removed in front of your face to allow your face to be seen clearly, um, but even, you know, to have your skin peeled back and your innards examined by the surgeon. Right? I think that that is the reason why she keeps coming back to that surgery imagery. Um, as well, of course, as it, it provides, I think, an important context. What she would have described, surely, earlier on, simply as torture, right? Um, simply as the, the, the sadistic pleasure of the gods in bringing torment uh, to her to cut her open and, uh, uh, and, you know, poke around inside her for their own amusement. She now characterizes as surgery. Still very intrusive, right? Still very invasive in every sense. Um, and yet done in order to heal, right? Done in order, perhaps, to remove something malignant. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, uh, so, um, that is, yeah, Sphinx, it's a little bit more like Eustace's dragon shedding in the Dawn Treader, for those who, for those who know the voyage of the Dawn Treader, yes, yes, a little bit more like that. In fact, uh, Sphinx, I do like that parallel, as again, that, that's also all about being bare, right, being stripped. Um, uh, Eustace speaks of that. Right, he has to undress, uh, and he, he, he doesn't undress enough, right? Um, and it has to be done to him, done for him. So yeah, I think that is a good parallel. Um, so we're uh, beginning to look at those things. One of the first things that she pointed up again, apart from the process of reading the book, one of the these first kind of surgical acts that, um, f surgical acts, not surgery with an ax, of course, um, is... Um, that um, she met Terran, uh, the eunuch, whom she remembers being made a eunuch, right? The guy who kissed uh, Redival, who told her about how lonely Redival was. That was, she said, you know, a small thing. But what we saw is it was a small thing that helped her, that prompted her uh, to revise her entire vision, her entire memory um, of Redival. Um, the place that she had given all in the story of her life, which she realizes was a very partial and a very narrow one, right? Um, this uh, next bit is going to be a much more painful piece of surgery, um, a much more thorough um, bearing um, exposure um, of Orwell. Uh, to herself, um, so so let's get to it. This is a this is a challenging passage. You'll remember that we just were looking at the uh, how she was handling um, the news of Bardia's illness and then his death, and how uh, Arnhem, the priest, uh, prevented her from seeing him on his deathbed um, because Arnhem was telling her that the only hope 
he thought that Bardia had of survival is if he were allowed to rest completely and that he would not rest um, if the queen were there. He would be trying to bestir himself um, and tell her all the things he, you know, do all the business that he needed to do and all that sort of thing, right? Um, So uh, one of the consequences of this, of course, is that she does not get a chance to say goodbye to Bardia. And of course, in the uh, sort of brutal honesty that has been so characteristic of Orwell all the way through, she confessed that what she wanted, um, what she was pining for more than anything else in that, um, and what she knew that she was losing in not getting a chance to say that last goodbye, is finally saying what she had never said to him confessing um, that she had always loved him. Um, Not saying what she admitted even at the time she knew that it would shame him to hear. Um, So, we, um, and yes, Ambrosius, you're absolutely right that Arnhem's warning is an early sign of the revelation she's about to have with Ansett, that her relationship with Bardia isn't as healthy for him as she had thought. Um, yes, yes, exactly. And that's, she, so she does, there is a sense in which she's been kind of warned about this, right? Um, there is reason for her um, not to be totally blindsided by the conversation that happens with Hanson. Um But let's, um, let's go into it. Okay. It was very unlooked for, said I. Did you at first see any danger in this sickness? Yes. Did you so? To me, Arnhem said it ought to have been a light matter. He said that to me, Queen. He said it would be a light matter for a man who had all his strength to fight it. Strength? But the Lord Bardia was a strong man. Yes, as a, as a tree that is eaten away within. Eaten away? And with what? I never knew this. I suppose not, Queen. He was tired. He had worked himself out, or been worked, Ten years ago he should have been given over and lived as old men do. He was not made of iron or brass, but flesh. So Ansett um, is pretty much loaded for bear from the very first moment of this conversation, right? Um, There is uh, no hesitation. Yes, Ambrosius, I exactly get that impression too, that Ansett has been thinking about this conversation for decades, right? Um, What we see here is is... a, to Orwell, completely unexpected reversal, right? Liz, that's exactly what I was thinking. Um, Orwell has been thinking about what she has been holding back from telling Bardia all these years and what she wishes she could tell. And instead, what she, uh, what she runs straight into is Ansett, who has um, wanted to tell the queen her feelings for years and has always held them back. Right. Um, and it's clear the, the, the kind of um, the kind of difference. Right. Um, between the two of them. Um, both have been holding back. Both Anson and the Queen have been holding back from expressing their real feelings. Right. Um, what's the difference? There's a similarity between them. Right. Between what the Queen has been holding back from saying and what Anson has been holding back from saying. Um, the similarity is that they've both been holding back 
kind of for the same reason. That is, Orwell has known that it would shame Bardia to hear what she wanted to tell him. Um, Ansett has known that it would shame Bardia for her to tell the queen what she wants to tell the queen, right? Um, she was certainly not going to tell the queen um, that Bardia was tired and should be given more rest. That would have been extremely shaming to Bardia, right? And yet, um, it also seems, um, yes, yes, Eric, that's a really good expression of what I was just thinking there, too. The queen's been holding back her own feelings about herself. Like, she's been holding back from sharing her own feelings. Whereas Ansett's been holding back an expression of her rather more real love for Bardia. Yes, she is concerned for another, for her husband, right? And for his sake has been holding back from saying it, even though she knows she's sacrificing him by saying it. She knows she is seeing him being worn down, but she won't say anything because she loves and respects him and knows that it would shame him to speak up, right? But this is not just a vent of, it is a vent of its own feelings, right? But not in the same way that the Queen's confession would have been a confession of her own feelings. Um, I agree with Eric that um, what Ansett is finally unleashing, it is her own feelings, but it's her own concern for, for another, right? Her own concern for Bardia that she's been... Um, that she's been holding back on. Yes, JJ says, so Orwell is focused on herself? That's first. Exactly. Now, notice, of course, how this falls in the progression. The first stage of the progression, well, and the first stage was the writing of the book, but um, as far as these event, these post-book one events that she is point, that Orwell's been pointing to, the first one was that one with Redival. That kind of realization, oh, wait, Redival's story has another side too, doesn't it, right? Um, maybe Redival... Is, was like a human being whose feelings might have deserved consideration all the way along. Maybe, maybe I should have at some point actually asked myself what the situation was like from Redival's point of view, right? So that same kind of trend um, that, we've, that we were seeing there, and we see it much more, um, much more powerfully, much more sort of horribly here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Feanaro, that's really interesting. Orwell's secret is contained in her own world. Ansett's feelings are rooted in the broader world. Yeah, so on the one hand, I don't want to uh, slight Orwell's love for Bardia by saying that it's like imaginary and Ansett's concerns are real. Um, there's a truth to that in one sense, right? Um, Orwell has been... Think about all of the time that Orwell spent indulging in sort of um, pure fantasies about Bardia, right? Like imagining that she and Bardia had been married in an alternate universe and that Psyche was their child. Remember, like that, that kind of thing, right? Um, uh, imaginings and wishings that are just sort of explicitly divorced from the real world, right? Just, just totally separate from the real world. Um, these kind of alternate, alternate reality uh, kinds of imaginations. And so there is a sense in which her love for Bardia has really kind of lived in that place, right? Has really sort of lived in that, uh, in that kind of world. Whereas Ansett is confronting the reality of Bardia's exhaustion 
um, and how he's being worn down, you know, how he's wearing down year by year as he ages. Um, and it's certainly, you know, tempting to call that real in comparison to um, this um, uh, sort of fantasy that the queen indulges in because her, um, any sense of satisfaction um, of her love for Bardia can only ever be in this alternate world, right? What she doesn't do is really just sort of let it go, right? Um, uh, just move on, right? Like, I can't, I can't have him, and, you know, uh, he's already married. He was married before I even fell in love with him, right? Um, and, uh, and, and, and there we go. Um, yeah, now, I do agree with you, um, uh, I do agree with you, Corey, that she is, um, there, it, it's not that there is no, un, that there is no selfishness involved in Ansett's perspective, right? Um, absolutely. There totally is. There totally is. She, um, there is a significant percentage of Ansett's reactions, which are, um, uh, simply venting her own feelings, right? Um, and some of those feelings are, though understandable, selfish. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Maureen says this conversation is like a sword fight. I agree, I agree. Um, but um, anyway, but let's let's uh, let's we're gonna we're gonna see a bunch. I didn't cut out a whole lot of this conversation because it's really important, I think, to see the flow. A, a couple things I cut, but not very much. Um, so let's, let's, let's read it through. The first movements here, right? The first thing is this confrontation of the picture of Bardia, right? And it's particularly interesting that Ansett immediately starts contradicting this. That is, when Orwell comes to Ansett, she comes to this is a, a visit of consolation, right? It's sort of an official visit of consolation. It's the right thing for her to do as queen, to visit the widow of her most trusted advisor, um, to, you know, commiserate with her on the death um, of her husband. Um, and so, of course, the topic that she chooses, like the topic that she sort of begins with, um, is sort of neutral. Right. I mean, it's it's a it's a, it's like it was very unlooked for. Did you at first see any danger in this sickness? Um, she's sharing her own surprise, right? Um, and this is really it's like an ob this is an opening that's inviting small talk, right? Um, the the obvious sort of polite answer to that question is, oh yes, Queen, it was very sudden and unlooked for, um, you know, and then. She can say nice things about Bardia, and then Ansett can thank her politely, right? Um, Ansett goes after it immediately. Um, the, notice just the flat monosyllable. Did you at first see any danger in this sickness? Yes. Right? No, there's no um, taking her up on the conversational gambit, you know? Um, uh, she just... Exactly, fan art. She goes off script immediately. That's not the kind of answer you give to that question. That kind of question, in this kind of context, right? Um, uh, when again, she was sort of making 
conversation. That's really interesting, Eric, that Ansett is speaking to the queen with the bluntness that Orwell always wanted from the gods. And Eric, that's a really important thing to recall, isn't it? Uh, remember how Orwell was from the beginning saying that she, in her book, was daring to do what almost nobody had ever dared to do, which is just to speak the truth flatly to the gods, right? And that's exactly what Ansett is doing in this scene, isn't it? Right? She is speaking the truth flatly to the queen, who is also semi-divine, right? Remember that there is a perception which Bardia clearly believed in. We saw that, right? Which the people of Gloam seem to believe in and which has only increased. Like, it was a, a fact from the beginning that the, um, the royal family is, um, it, you know, has the blood of the gods, right? Uh, and that they're ver therefore different in some ways. Remember what Orwell has said about her own, like the, the mythology of her reign that has grown up um, and how, she, and all of the, um, the, the, the mystery and speculation and, and, and wonder that has surrounded her, her veiled face, her military accomplishments, all of these things, ways she's been conflated with other mythic beings in her own lifetime. Um, so if she was already to some extent, on the other side of that mortal divine, or at least in this kind of middle state, right? Halfway between the, the, the mortal and the divine worlds. Um, she has kind of moved even further towards the divine side over the course of her life. Um, and here's Ansit doing what she's doing, right? Um, anyway, so there's Ansit not playing along. Um, what Ansett immediately sort of calls into what she brings up, like the, the topic that she raises, what, where she turns things, right? To me, Arnhem said it ought to have been a light matter, says, um, uh, says Orwell, says the queen, right? Still trying to like maintain the polite conversation that she had planned. Um, he said that to me, queen. He said it would be a light matter for a man who had all his strength to fight it. She immediately goes there. And it's fascinating because again, if you think about it, I would bet you that where, again, if we kind of imagine the polite conversation that the queen had in mind, right, that Orwell was planning going into this conversation, you've got to think um, that her, uh, her plan was to talk about how, you know, how wonderful, like, let's, let's talk about how wonderful Bardia was, right? And how much we, we both appreciated him, right? I, you know, how strong and how wise and, uh, and, and I, right? I mean, that's like what you do in this sort of a circuit, especially with someone who is like, you know, she who worked with him so closely and, and his wife, right? Who had, had been married with him for so long. Um, but, um, and instead what she does, like before the queen can even go there, Right, can even do that kind of thing, which is sort of the obvious polite conversation to have in this instance. Um, you know, a, a sort of a eulogy, right? Like a eulogy of appreciation of, uh, you know, the, the wonderful things about Bardia. Instead, the first thing that Ansett does, other than not play along with a polite conversation, is to call into question Bardia's strength. Um, for a man who had all his strength to fight it. And not, like, Oral gets almost defensive. Strength? But the Lord Bardia was a strong man, right? Um, <clears throat> she's, like, that's, that's, you know, she didn't come here to, you know, suggest that Bardia is weak, right? Um, uh, 
he is as a tree that is eaten away within. Um, and here we immediately see Ansett coming back to the queen. Eaten away? And with what? I never knew this. Now here Ansett is not direct for the first time, right? Um, she it doesn't exactly pull punches, but she's a little more indirect. Um, the queen says that she never knew that he was eaten away within. It doesn't know what he could possibly have been eaten away with, right? Um, again, Ansett is not 100% direct. You know, she doesn't say, you, queen, you ate him away. Um, she gets to it, right? But she doesn't say that directly. Um, I suppose not, queen. I suppose you didn't ever know this. Right. Um, and that itself is pretty stinging. He had worked himself out or been worked. Um, that turning the verb around into a passive verb. And that's a horrible verb to turn around into a passive verb, isn't it? The difference between the active, um, he worked, he, you know, he worked himself. Or he worked the active intransitive version of that verb or the active transitive he worked himself right when you turn that around um, that's in the active voice that's the verb that describes um, a hard-working diligent and industrious person when you turn it around into the passive he had been worked passive transitive verb transitive meaning a verb with a, that takes a direct object um, he had been worked. Now, all of a sudden, you're talking about slavery, right? Um, yeah, it makes him sound like a like an ox or a horse, Eric. Yeah, exactly. Um, th the difference between a hardworking, virtuous, industrious person and an abused slave, right in the voice of the verb there, right? Um, Ten years ago, he should have been given over and lived as old men do. He was not made of iron or brass, but flesh. Um, it's almost like she's gone straight past the, ac the accusation. Um, and in, in a way that's almost more damning, right? Instead of saying, Queen, you worked him to death, right? She sort of takes that as a given. Right? He was not made of iron or brass, but flesh. Like, you should have known. Um, uh, yes, he should have been given over. I saw somebody say this before. Um, that's a really interesting verb. I didn't see who said that. Um, that it, uh, It's a really interesting verb choice there, given over. Right. Um, and there, I think, by the way, you can see in its way... Um, well, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to go too far with this. Um, but we're talking about Ansett's selfishness as well, right? That phrasing is really interesting because what it suggests is like 10 years ago, he should have been given over. Like, um, uh, um, like sort of possession of him or custody of Bardia. Right, should have been given over or transferred from the queen to Ansett. Right, Ansett speaks of Bardia almost as an object to be transferred. There, 
Right. Um, she doesn't say something like, uh, you know, he, 10 years ago he should have been uh, released to live as old men do or, or something like that. Um, now, again, I don't want to be unfair to Ansett. She wanted Bardia to be given over to her care, right, for the queen to relinquish her hold on Bardia and for Bardia to be given entirely over to Ansett um, because Ansett wanted to take care of him. Right, because Ansett wanted to, um, uh, to, to let him rest and help him rest. Maureen and I agree. It was it was her turn in old age. Um, yes, yes, I agree. I, I I'm not in any way saying that what Ansett's saying is unreasonable. Um, but but we 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 can hear we can hear that um, that sort of dynamic in there as well. Um, yes, Emily, I think it's good for us to remember. The scene where the fox clearly wanted to go home, um, but Orwell begged him to stay, and he stayed. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think you have to know that the queen is thinking about that, too. Right? It hits home harder about Bardia in this situation. The fox is already dead by this time. Um, but, um, uh, but, yeah. Um, and yes, Ambrosius, I do think that with the given over, I do think that Ansett is also acknowledging he never would have to say um, to say something like ten years ago he should have been allowed to retire, right, or something like that. Um, that sort of phrasing suggests that that's what Bardia would choose to do, right, if he were just let you know set free. Um, but that's not the case. Bardia chose this. Bardia chose to keep serving. It was exactly. Um, as uh, as uh, as Leif says, um, Bardia took much of his identity from his service to the queen. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, he does. Um, uh, and so there is, I think, in that in that verb given over, um, a sort of acknowledgement on Ansett's part as well that the it would the queen would had would have to have done it, right? She would have had to retire him. She would have had to given. She would have had to transfer, you know, ownership over to, to answer custody, you know, over to Ansett because he wouldn't have done it on his own. But in its way, that's an even more barbed shaft, isn't it? Because what it says is you never once thought of him because you were too busy thinking of yourself. Um, had you thought about him? Had you, had you really cared about him, you would have thought that he was not made of iron or brass, but flesh. Um, yeah, let's keep going. He never looked or spoke like an old man. Notice again, she's still, Orwell, still trying to praise him. She's still doing eulogies, right? And... Remember one of the other elements that we've already talked about. Her relationship with Bardia was never built on reality. It was always built on fantasy, right? In her mind, he never was an old man. Because in her mind, she was always imagining him to be other. Just like she always, she, just like, remember how she froze Psyche? Froze Psyche in the happy childhood days? Set up, you know... She didn't just preserve Psyche's room the way that it was. She reverted Psyche's room to how it had been, 
removed everything that reminded her of the Grey Mountain, right? And uh, and created this sort of fantasy memory of Psyche. And she's been doing that with Bardia, too. Of course, to her, he never looked or spoke like an old man because she was always living in this alternate reality in which they were always both young and like the parents of Psyche, right? Um, so, he never looked nor spoke like an old man. Perhaps you never saw him, Queen, at the times when a man shows his weariness. You never saw his haggard face in early morning, nor heard his groan when you, because you had sworn to do it, must shake him and force him to rise. You never saw him come home late from the palace, hungry yet too tired to eat. How should you, Queen? I was only his wife. He was too well-mannered, you know, to nod and yawn in a queen's house. You mean that his work, five wars, thirty-one battles, nineteen embassies, taking thought for this and thought for that, speaking a word in one ear and another and another, soothing this man and scaring that and flattering a third, devising, consulting, remembering, guessing, forecasting, and the pillar room, and the pillar room. The mines are not the only place where a man can be worked to death. And here we have the first explicit parallel between the queen and her father. I don't mean ever. I mean in this conversation, right? Um, where Ansett comes back around. And I don't think she's here doing it knowingly, right? Um, that is, I don't think Ansett knew the king well enough, right, uh, to know exactly the button that she's pushing here, right? But we know. Um, we remember... Uh, not only the king sending slaves to be worked to death in the mines, um, but we remember Orwal's scorn for that, right? How she despised her father, not only for his cruelty, but for the waste of it, right? One of the things that she changed when she became queen, um, which transformed the financial, the economic fortunes, right, of Gloam, was she set the mines on a proper footing. Um, you know, admitted that her father seemed only ever to see the mines as a place for punishment, right? Send him to the mines, right? To work himself to death. And that she transformed the mines. Um, she gave the miners proper pay and furloughed them after a certain number of years of work, right? Um, allowing them to retire and, and therefore, and incentivized, right, the output from the mines. And as a result, um, uh, as I say, like, uh, it, now the, 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 the new mines and the higher output from the mines under the new and, uh, you know, humane planning of Orowal, when she transformed the mines from merely a torture device um, into something that could actually be, again, the, the, the kind of transformation there is very typical of Orwell's rule and of the contrast between Orwell's rule and her father's rule, right? What he saw only as a place to where people can be destroyed. She saw as a place where wealth and bounty could come if the people were treated more sort of kindly uh, instead, right? Um, and now, so now to have that turned around on her here by Ansett is really, really amazing, right? 
the mines are not the only place where a man can be worked to death. This sudden, horrible uh, vision of her court as the mines, right? That her court itself, um, her pillar room itself, is the place where the man that she loved, she sent the man that she loved to work himself to death. Um, not only just kind of the personal horror of that, to think that maybe she had done that to the man that she loved, but um, but again, the, um, the hideous and painful reversal, like having all of that sort of thing was out with her father, right? She is, in comparison to her father, uh, the wise, thoughtful, and humane ruler. Um, and to find that all of the work that she was most focused on, all the work that she herself was doing, that her, her political work at the center of her rule should be as destructive um, and wasteful um, as the mines under the king is just a, a horrible, a horrible thing here. Um, yeah, Fanaro uh, says, I'm really stunned that we don't see the king's white rage show in Orwell now like it has in the past. Um, yes, Ants is going to keep pushing her buttons and we'll get there, right? The king will come out from her uh, uh, before the end, right? But I will say that seems to me kind of a, a, a pretty good sign, right? Um, Orwell is pretty patient, certainly more patient than... Um, uh, than the king would have been, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, oh, so uh, the capitalization of Pillar Room, that's just, so the Pillar Room has been a thing from the beginning. Um, the Pillar Room is, um, was, it's the, it's the throne room. It's the room of council and rule. Um, and, um, she has been the the pillar room has been the center of political authority, the center of, of rule. Um, it's like the um, the holy sanctum of the king's house that corresponds to the sanctum in the house of Ungit. Um, there's a different kind of holiness. Again, remember royalty and royal rule and royal authority is associated with the divine as well. Right. Um, so there's a there's a kind of holiness about the pillar room. And this is something that I think that we're supposed to remember, especially when the next thing after this, we go and spend some time in the sanctuary of Ungit as well. Right. Um, but of course, the other thing to remember. Um, he's being worked to death in the pillar room. On her altar. Right, the pillar room is like the sanctum, her sanctum, the queen's sanctum, and Ungit, or sorry, not Ungit, Ansit is suggesting that Bardia has been sacrificed on her altar in her pillar room. Right, um, so it's kind of like the mines, where men would be sent 
to be worked to death. Remember when the, the scare about the fox being sent to the mines to be worked to death. Um, and remember the panic that young Orwell felt when she thought the fox was going to be sent to the pillar or not to the pillar room when he was to be sent to the mines. And remember, he was taken to the pillar room instead. Right. He was worked in the pillar room as an alternative to being sent to the mines. You may remember. Um, and this comes back uh, to. Um, oh, who was talking about the fox before? Um, sorry, I don't always remember after it scrolls by for a while. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah, uh, whoever it was who was who was rem- reminding me about Orwell um, begging the fox to stay when he really wanted to go as well, right? Um, for the fox, it was the minds of the pillar room, right? And remember that he, his version of that story, that part of the story, she remembers the time with the fox and Psyche as this golden time. But remember that he, the fox, was being worked hard. He loved being with Orwell and Psyche. She's not wrong about that, right? It's not like he was miserable the whole time. Um, he loved them and he loved spending time with them but he was squeezing that in and being told to watch red of all uh, and being given the responsibility like the the blame if anything went wrong with red of all right while at the same time he was being um taken in and the pillar room and the pillar room right for the fox back then with the king um when the king was needing him so here was the fox himself being run threadbare such that when she gives him, when she becomes queen and makes her first act before her, um, before the combat, uh, to give the fox his freedom, he, everyone assumes he's going to take it and go finally to the release. Um, the fox was going to be given over, right? To live the life of an old man back in the Greek lands. Right. That's the vision that he had, that, that Bardia had for him. Right. And again, I think if the fox had been telling the story, that period of time, which is the golden age to Orwell, may well have looked very different. Yes, he lost the last of his red hair at that time. More badger than fox. Right. He says comically. Right. Um, cheerfully. And yet there was clearly some real suffering there as well. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, Maureen, you were remembering that badger line there too. Um, yes. Um, <laughs> I guess he would have been an Arctic fox, curious chance, but, uh, he didn't know anything about Arctic foxes. Um, but, um, okay. Um, Look at so let's go back to what in the middle. Um, Orwell, sorry, Ansett talking to Orwell here. Um, notice how little Orwell is able to get in here, right? Ansett is in full flow, absolutely not holding back. Um, with the he never looked nor spoke like an old man, that statement grounded in her, um, uh, Orwell's fantasy. Right, um, we get uh, we get the confrontation of reality, the things that you never saw, 
the times when a man shows his weariness. Remember all of those times we got the references to Ansett before, all the other thoughts that the queen had had about Ansett, the, all of the time that she grudged when Bardia had to leave starting that first day, right after the combat, um, when uh, he begs off and won't be there at the celebration with the queen of her victory uh, because Ansett's giving birth inconveniently, right? And so uh, Bardia goes off. And there are other references after that um, to the time that she grudges him spending with his wife, right? Um, and the references to Bardia being a... a Uxorius, that is, paying rather too much attention to his wife. Um, the ridiculousness of him having taken her without a dowry uh, because he loved her for her beauty, right? Um, we have, and, and so in Orwell's mind, all of the time that he spends away from her with Ansett is this, like, really special quality time, right? At the end of the day, when the work is done, he goes back to her. And she grudges, Orwell grudges the fact that all of his off-duty time, all of the personal time, all of that time, you know, when he's punched out from work, um, Ansett gets all of that, right? And she never gets to see him. He's always checking out to go back home, right? And now Ansett tells her what we get the other side of that, what that was all really like. And what it's like is it's when he came home that he was able to show his weariness, his haggard face in the early morning, his groan um, uh, when you must shake him and force him to rise. Uh, she's talking about herself there, right? How he had, had made her promise he had made his wife swear to shake him and wake him up, despite the fact that he was exhausted and she knew he was exhausted. But, she, but he made her swear to shake him and force him to rise, right? And she followed through on that promise instead of doing what she felt was better, uh, was better for him, right? Um, I love the way that she shifts... Um, Notice what she's doing. Notice the, 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 the person that she's speaking the second person, right? You never saw. Um, and that sentence, the business about shaking him and forcing him to rise, in that sentence, the you is particularly interesting and apt for Orwell, right? Because when she just says, you never saw, you never saw, right? Um, She's saying the things that you never did, but in that one sentence in the middle, nor heard his groan when you must shake him, when you, because you had sworn to do it, must shake him and force him to rise. See what she did there? She there challenges Orwell to imagine being Bardia's wife, which is exactly what Orwell's always doing, right? Except she is piercing the fantasy that... Um, Orwell had always had and said, imagine being his wife and being forced to do this. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Well, she is saying you never got to be his wife, but remember, Maureen, she, Ansett, does not yet realize. She doesn't 
actually know that the queen was in love with Bardia. She doesn't know that yet. Um, and that's going to come. And it's going to be a shock when it comes. It's going to be a shock to her when it comes. Um, what she's doing here, the irony, I think, is that she is here imagining the queen never actually imagined herself to be in the position. She never really thought this through from his wife's perspective. And there's a really bitter irony to that, right? Because we know, of course, that she's been thinking about little else, and yet never this reality, right? Never this side of things. How should you, queen? I was only his wife. He was too well-mannered, you know, to nod and yawn in a queen's house. What's the difference, right? That world that uh, Orwell was so envious of, right? That side of Bardia she never got to see. And what was that side? It turns out the side that she never got to see was the side where he was able to nod and yawn, right? Um, what was it like for her, for Anset, when Bardia did come home? Well, what it was mostly like was him being so exhausted he couldn't even carry on a conversation, right? Because he couldn't allow him himself to nod and yawn in the queen's house, but he did at home, right? Um, her trying to feed him and him being too tired to eat. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, Leif, that's a really important uh, point that Ansett has never really had personhood for Orwell. Yes. Remember, this is also a... She's... Never? Has she ever seen Orwell's face? I'm not sure she has. I don't think Orwell met her until after she veiled herself. I don't think... I don't think Ansett has ever seen the Queen's face. The Queen has always been um, depersonalized for her. And again, therefore, because of her position, because of her reputation, um, she is on this, in more in the divine realm. Right. Um, yes, exactly, Sphinx. Bardia's vulnerability was unavailable to Orwell, but his exhaustion was primarily what Ansett got. That's what vulnerability looked like, right? Um, it, it's never, it's very far from what... Um, uh, from what Orwell ever imagined. And this too, you think back to Psyche and the things that Psyche said, uh, how she would um, do what Orwell would bristle at, right? Remember what Orwell called throwing her virginity in her face? That she doesn't understand what it is to love um, because she's never been with anyone. She's never, she's never had a relationship with anyone. Um, and so she doesn't understand. So when, you know, Orwell is talking back in her conversation with Psyche about, um, you know, uh, Psyche's relationship with her husband, right? And Psyche's like, you can't understand. We see this again from Ansett, right? Um, the naive visions, still, you know, it's it, still the case with a geriatric queen. Her vision of marriage to Bardia is still a naive vision, right? This is the reality. This, what, uh, what Ansett is describing is the, like, the actual life that you live 
when you're married for 50 years, right? Um, and that's the kind of thing that Orwell literally can't imagine, right? And therefore has always imagined wrong. Um, Yes, yes, uh, Mighty Felix, you're exactly right. Psyche talked about being obedient to her husband, and Orwell didn't understand why. Um, Ansett was being obedient by waking her husband, yes. The sacrifices that she herself, Ansett, was willing to make, the choice that she made to not oppose, you know, not to take away from her husband, right? And we're getting to that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, her next statement Orwell's next statement you mean that his work she doesn't even get to finish the, the question right um, just the acknowledgement just the, the saying of that word his, his work right prompts this flood five wars 31 battles 19 embassies Who's counting? His wife is counting, right? Um, she has a very clear view of all of the work that Bardia has been put to throughout the Queen's reign. Um, yes, Maureen, you're very right to remember that. Remember uh, the Queen setting out to kill the woman in her, right? She has... Uh, kind of like Lady Macbeth unsexed herself, right, as we discussed. Um, that does seem to be connected to it as well. How can she understand, really understand, really imagine what it would be like to be someone's wife um, when she has been working all this time, not only to, like, lock up her own emotions, um, but her own femininity as well like she's um uh yes like the whole she imagines herself being a mother a wife right adopting these feminine roles while at the same time she's trying to literally kill the woman in her um so yeah maureen i agree that seems to that seems to be a problem right it's not surprising that leads to issues um yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Let's keep going. Uh, I think I skipped, this is one of the places where I skipped a little bit, where Ansett says that the queen has been very fortunate in her servants, right? And there, of course, there is the distant, it's not direct, right? The indirect implication that um, she worked the fox to death too, right? Um, but anyway, here's now the queen finally sort of on her she's, um, her attempts at polite conversation failed. Her kind of staggering expressions of surprise at this uh, frontal assault by Ansett um, have stopped. And now uh She's uh, going on the defensive a bit. I know I have had loving servants. Do you grudge me that? Even now in your grief, will your heart serve you to grudge me that? Do you mock me because that is the only sort of love I ever had or could have? No husband, no child. And you, you who have had all? All you left me, queen. 
Left you, fool? What mad thought is in your mind? Oh, I know well enough that you were not lovers. You left me that. The divine blood will not mix with subjects, they say. You left me my share. When you had used him, you would let him steal home to me until you needed him again. After weeks and months at the wars, you and he night and day together, sharing the counsels, the dangers, the victories, the soldiers' bread, the very jokes. He could come back to me, each time a little thinner and grayer and with a few more scars, and fall asleep before his supper was down and cry out in his dream, Quick, on the right there, the queen's in danger. And next morning, the queen's a wonderful early riser in gloam, the pillar room again. I'll not deny it. I had what you left of him. Remember that throughout her conversation with Psyche, we saw this pattern, this her self-pity, basically, right? The way that she would turn things, um, thinking about what Psyche was doing to her, right? Thinking about how pitiable um, her own situation is, right? Do you mock me because that is the only sort of love I ever had or could have? No husband, no child. Um, Bardia, Psyche, and you, you who have had all. Here we get the first expression, the first open expression, or almost open expression, of Orwell's envy of Ansett, right? The fact that in her mind, she always had Bardia... Ansett always had Bardia, always had of Bardia what Orwell herself wanted, that she never even properly valued what she did have from Bardia because she was always focused on the one part that she didn't have. She was not his wife. She was not his lover. She was not the mother of his children. Um, and again, remember that, that moment after the fight when at the like crowning glory uh, and accomplishment um, of her, this, this like magnificent turning point in her own life, the queen's own life, right? The establishment of her reign um, at that very moment, Ansett's given birth and boop, off Bardia goes, right? He is going to choose his wife over her. His work is done, right? Um, and, um, uh, Yes, Eric, you're right that each woman wanted what the other had of Bardia. Yes, yes. Um, oh, yes, that backhanded compliment, the Queen's a wonderfully early riser. Then um, Feanara, you notice the echo there, right? Uh, the echo of Ansett's anguished swearing to shake her husband and wake him up early before he's rested um, because he promised to do it whereas the queen is a wonderful early riser in Gloam, right? Leaps out of bed early in the morning um, and Bardia has to be there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Eric, I see the emphasis you're placing on steel. Um, that's a really important word there, isn't it? Um, when you had used him, you would let him steal home to me. As if he had to sneak, right? Um, uh, and again, you think of how we've been 
to some extent familiar with how the queen thought of Bardia um, during those times when he would go home. And she grudged it, right? Um, she grudged it this sign that his wife was more important than she, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Liz, it's, it's an interesting and complicated question. Um, Liz says, I hate to do the gender thing because I don't think it's really about it, but also it feels like she's pitting the men's world against the woman's world. I do wonder whether she'd feel this way if the, que if, if the queen was instead a king. Will she react the same way when her son serves Orwell's nephew? Really, really great question. Um, yeah, on the one hand, I, I agree with your impulse. I don't think the gender thing, as you say, is what this is all about exactly like I think if we see this as like sort of just about um, you know gender stuff um, I, I think we'd be missing the point however I think the gender dynamic and the gender element in it is a really really important one right it is it is crucial here that what we are seeing is not only um, uh, you know we're, I, this is not just a work-life balance question. It's not framed as only a work-life balance question. Um, it's framed as Bardia and the two women, right? The two women in Bardia's life. Um, Bardia's service to the queen and his relationship to his wife. And the fact that there is also um, direct envy, really on both sides, his wife envying all the time that he spends with the queen, the queen envying um, his marriage, his relationship uh, with his wife. Um, that, I, th I think, is a really important, um, uh, is, a, is a really important element. <clears throat> and I agree, Eric, you're, you're, as I say, it's not that it is only, like, uh, that's why I think it would be, it would be wrong to focus on this merely as a sort of gender question. Um, um, Eric says, I don't think Orwell overworked him because she was a woman, but because she was oblivious Orwell. Yes, but I think it's crucially important that that dynamic, that dynamic of sexual jealousy is also overlaid over the situation so that we have um, the way in which this, the kinds of connections I've been making back to the psyche conversation, we're supposed to be doing that, right? Um remember at the heart in one sense of this story um, what is this the story of um, what's the issue in this book it's been Orwell and the gods from the beginning which gods in particular um, Eros and Aphrodite right um, so the fact that um Sexual love, marital love, is connected in this whole thing is not an accident, right? Um, and so this whole situation, and again, it's just part of the brilliance of this, um, the way in which Lewis opens this up. Um, the character of Bardia is so pivotal in this, too. Um, the Orwell situation. Right, Orwell's relationship with the gods, Orwell's relationship to love, um, her understanding of love and what love means 
is given all of these many dimensions, right? Um, it connects with, I mean, again, if you know C.S. Lewis's Four Loves, it, it, it's, it's all of them, right? Her relationship with Psyche as quasi-mother and daughter relationship. Her relationship with the fox as quasi-father-daughter relationship, also friend relationship, the two of them working together. Her and Bardia as friends working together, but also the sexual dynamic there, the erotic dimension with Bardia, and between Psyche and the god as well, which um, uh, which Orwell felt herself to be on the outside of and, and, and making blunders about. It just in it, the way that Lewis makes this whole situation like relevant everywhere, right? It's um, it's remarkable, um, very remarkable. Um, okay, so when yeah, the shift from you who have had all again that picture in her head. And then the cold water reality of Ansett's perspective, all that you left me, Queen. Um, it's interesting when she, when Orwell responds to that, and, and she's starting to get angry for the first time. Left you, fool? What mad thought is in your mind? Um, she interprets all that you all you left me she interprets that as an accusation by Ansett that she was sleeping with Bardia right that i think is the mad thought that she is suggesting is in Ansett's mind when she says all that you left me right um and um Ansett being um so dismissive of that. Oh, I know well enough you were not lovers, right? Yeah, don't worry. I'm not jealous of that, right? You left me that. She knows the queen didn't sleep with Bardia, right? Um, but her very dismissiveness of that is even more, um, is even more stinging, right? No, 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 I'm not, this is not about me being a jealous wife, Right? It's not that at all. And she even then flips that to a kind of insult. The divine blood will not mix with subjects, they say. Um, uh, you are too far above him. Right? You left me my share. You left me my share. Remember Ungit. Remember the sacrifices that Ungit demands. Remember the king's complaints about all of the bulls and rams that he gave to Ungit, right? Um, Ungit is supposed to leave people their share, right? Um, and that's how, that's how Ansett speaks of it. You left me my share. Um, yes, Jack Rabbit, I agree. The awful fact that Ansett thinks the reason Orwell didn't have sex with Bardia is because she's of divine blood and he wasn't, right? Um, and here is where we can see the irony, right? Again, we're seeing irony. Boy, it, if, um, if this isn't a book that really 
opens up to you like whole new levels of dramatic irony, right? I mean, I, it's, it's incredible that way. But anyhow, um, again, she doesn't realize. She has no idea that Orwell has been in love with her husband for decades, right? And not knowing that. Um, again, see how she's treating her. There is this overtone. Um, what is she? Tr what is she? Com what is she implicitly comparing um, Orwell to all the way along? Ungit. She is implicitly comparing Orwell to Ungit continuously here. She is talking about Orowal and Orowal's demands like Bardia used to speak of the gods. And do you remember what Bardia said about the gods? What was Bardia's hope for himself concerning the gods? He believed in the gods. Right? He would faithfully avoid anything that he knew, you know, might tick off the gods. Yes, what he wanted was to keep his head down and stay out of the gods' way. That they not panning attention, that they le he leave them alone and they leave him alone. And Ansett, in coming back as she does again and again to the divine blood of the queen, makes it clear that she thinks Bardia's desire in that way was painfully and horribly not realized. That in the queen's attentions, indeed her fixation on Bardia throughout his life. Um, Bardia has been victimized, dominated, drained, sacrificed to the capricious will of the gods in her. Right? Um... Yes, Corey, you're right. We have seen Orwell's pride in her own correct behavior, conquering her urges. She was all proud of her. She's been proud of herself for decades that she never once said what she wanted to say, did what she wanted to do. She felt that she was being very restrained and doing the right thing. Right. Yes. Um, yes. Um, Yes. So, um, and of course, there is the obvious layer of irony here. How all the, this characterization, this perspective from Ansett makes Orwell's, um, all of her complaints against the gods, all of the horrible things that she says about the gods and what they do to humans <clears throat> kind of horribly rebound back um, on herself, right? Um, to find in the end that not, or not just, <clears throat> that she might have been wrong about the gods all the time, but that the things that she said about the gods, the complaints that she made about the gods, are all true, but they're true of her instead of them. 
that seems to be some of the surgery that's going on here, right? We've already seen this, remember, in that rewriting the past backwards stuff, which he was accusing. Why don't the gods ever do that for good, right? Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, a couple of you are mentioning um, Orwell's ugliness. Um, even her ugliness itself becomes... Like retroactively, it becomes something like a manifestation of her attitude. Like her ugliness becomes a kind of expression of the very ugliness that she has been seeing in the gods and in their actions and their motivations all the way through. Right. Um, more. Her look and voice now were such as no woman could mistake. What? I cried. Is it possible you're jealous? She said nothing. Um, all of this stuff about, um, and, and I, I'm sorry, one of you mentioned, um, Ansett having to endure hearing her husband call out someone else, another woman's name in his sleep, right? Yes, that's there, right? Um, the queen's in danger, right? Um, yes, and again, it's not in a sexual context. She does not have exactly sexual... She's not worrying that her husband is cheating on her, right? She is, she, 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 um knows well enough that they were not lovers, right? And yet there is that edge, which is exactly like Joe. She, because she is envious. She is jealous of her husband. She is envious of the life that he had with her, right? Um, and in that moment, Orwell feels it. Um, she had, she had, we'd been picking up on it all the way along. She had not, right? But she finally... Her look and voice now were such as no woman could mistake. Notice, um, Liz, how it gets gendered there again. She's speaking, she's reacting as a woman to another woman when they're both talking about the man that they both love, right? Um, and there can be no mistake that she is, that Ansett is jealous of her, of the queen. Is it possible you're jealous? She said nothing. And that's a first in this conversation, right? Ansett has uh, not been short of words uh, to this point. So you can tell there is, this is the line that she is not willing to cross. She's not been unwilling to cross any other line so far, right? But she's unwilling to go there. And I think we can see why, right? The conversation, that, the, the stuff that she has wanted to say, the things that have been pouring out of Ansett have all been about Bardia have all been about what the queen did to him, right? She has been in there showing her own feelings and complaining for herself, right? But that's where she's not going to go. She's not going to talk about her own wounded feelings. She's not going to talk about her own jealousy um, and her own thwarted desires. That would be a complaint about herself, and that's not, not what she's here to talk about, right? She's here to talk about Bardia. Um, 
And yes, the astonishment of this moment, um, Corey, as you say, she's been jealous of Ansett for years. Um, so she'd be astonished to find that Ansett is jealous of her, especially since in Orwell's mind, the, the, the jealousy is all in one direction, as we just saw, right? Um, you who have had all, right? Um, she I absolutely assumes um, that Ansett has nothing to be jealous of. She's the one who has everything to be jealous of. Um, but again, remember her ugliness, her own self-image here, right? She knows Ansett was so beautiful when she was younger that Bardia married her without a dowry, which was unheard of in that culture, apparently, right? Enough to get him teased throughout his life for doing it, right? Um, uh, she, Ansett, was always the subject of that kind of desire. She was not only a woman for whom a man would turn away from, you know, prosperity and even prudence in order to be with, right? Um, which is the absolute opposite of Orwell herself, who was so ugly that no one would ever want her. And we remember that one kind of indirect, overheard, backhanded love speech um, from Bardia, right? About how um, if she weren't the daughter of a king and, um, uh, you know, maybe if a man were blind, she might make him a good wife, right? Um, that's Orwell's sense of, like, she has never been desired for herself, she has never been wanted. She's never been the, the object, ever the object of eros, of erotic love, right? And here's Ansett, the center, like the, 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 the paradigm, right? The, uh, the trendsetter of, as far as being the target of erotic love. And not only that, but of Bardia himself, right? The one who was not only just that kind of object of desire, but the object of desire of the man that she loved, right? Um, and this is why, of course, it seems utterly absurd to Orwell that anyone would be jealous of her. Her, she who has never been desired by anyone, least of all Bardia, right? I sprang to my feet and pulled aside my veil. Look, look, you fool, I cried. Are you jealous of this? She started back from me, gazing, so that for a moment I wondered if my face were a terror to her. Orwell unveils herself for the first time in how many years? Maybe 40 years, something like that, right? Um, she pulls back her veil in order to reveal her own ugliness. This is a moment of... Well, that's a complicated moment, isn't it? On the one hand, it's a moment of real vulnerability. She is showing to Ansett, see, do you see how ugly I am? Look, I am hideous. How can you possibly be jealous of this? Are you jealous of this? Um... And yet she does it to 
um, she does it to like win the fight, right? To prove that she is the one who deserves pity. She does it to kind of turn the tables on her. And the queen is the one with all the power, right? Ansett is here. She's been speaking truth to power on Bardia's behalf. We just see she won't do it on her own behalf. She won't complain about her own feelings, but she will speak up for Bardia, though, you know, now that she can do him no shame by doing so, right? Um, And now Orwal. Is it just me, though? There's something in this that feels a little bit like when she stabbed herself through the arm. It's not the same kind of coercion, but it's almost like that. It's almost like she's trying to coerce Ansett into feeling pity for her, right? To concede, ah, yes, I see now. You are the pitiable one. You're right. He did desire me. I, 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 I have been beautiful, at least, Right. I was the object of his desire. I was the object of his choice. And you were you were never that. Right. Um, Jack, you were thinking of the stabbing, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, As if by showing her face, she can compel that kind of pity from Ansett. Right. And. The response is so remarkable. She started back from me, gazing, so that for a moment I wondered if my face were a terror to her. But it was not fear that moved her. For the first time, that prim mouth of hers twitched. The tears began to gather in her eyes. Oh, she gasped. Oh, I never knew you also. What? You loved him. You've suffered too, we both. She was weeping, and I. Next moment, we were in each other's arms. It was the strangest thing that our hatred should die at the very moment she first knew her husband was the man I loved. It would have been far otherwise if he were still alive. But on that desolate island, our blank, unbardied life, we were the only two castaways. We spoke a language, so to call it, which no one else in the huge, heedless world could understand. Yet it was a language only of sobs. We could not even begin to speak of him in words. That would have unsheathed both daggers at once. Yeah, Jack Rabbit, in this moment, they both have faces. She takes off her veil in order to show Ansett her ugliness. To try to compel Ansett to pity her. And instead, what Ansett sees is not her ugliness but her love. She reveals her humanity to Ansett. Ansett has been seeing her as this divine figure. Right? Um, She's been thinking of her, treating her like one of the gods. Ironically, she's, again, she's been speaking the truth to the gods just like Orwell did uh, in her book. I guess she's not the only one after all, is she? Um, now she sees her human face and she doesn't care. She's not even interested that she's ugly. That's not even... Again, notice how Orwell assumes that when she's 
darts back in surprise and gazes at her for so long. Orwell assumes that Ansett is repulsed and horrified by her ugliness. Right. And instead, she's moved by her humanity. She sees her human emotion. She is not just an unfeeling goddess. She was not just an unfeeling goddess sucking the life out of her husband. Um, she was, she's a woman. And Orwell's keenly aware um, of the irony of this. It was the strangest thing that our hatred should die out at the very moment she first knew her husband was the man I loved. What would seem to trigger more jealousy, more hatred, right? But instead, in humanizing Orwell, she does pity her. The irony is that it works. She does, like, by taking her veil away, she's trying to take her veil away in order to compel Ansett to pity her. And she does pity her, but not for the reason that she thought that she thought she did. She thought she would, right? Um, uh, yeah, Jackie, you're absolutely right. Um, Jackie is quoting from C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, in his section on friendship. When he characterizes friendship, he, uh, he says in the, in the quote, the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. That's how Lewis characterizes the beginning of the kind of love that is friendship. Um, and yeah, Jackie, you're absolutely right. We get this moment of connection, this moment of, 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 of love, this moment of friendship uh, between the two of them. Yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, Cal Eros has seen quite commonly at moots across the world. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's... Um, um, I've been reflecting about this a lot, uh, coming from Osmoot this past weekend. Of course, just within the last 48 hours, um, I've returned uh, to my home from Australia, uh, where we had Osmoot, and Osmoot has been a, a, just a remarkable uh, gathering. Um both of the, the two years now we've done it, um, watching that discovery happen. There have been so many people who have come together at Osmoot who didn't know each other before, but have discovered in each other's company that that moment, right? That moment of shared, uh, of shared love, right? Of shared, uh, 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 shared, shared delight and passion. Um, and just being there and watching friendships grow. Man, it has been it's so rewarding. It is the best thing about attending moots in person, um, is to see people have that experience. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's really fun. Sphinx Fortune, we did not immediately revert to being enemies, uh, so that was a good thing. <laughs> right? But, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, the, um, 
but yes, also several of you were referring to the way that she um, uses Bardia's name as a verb there, which is a very, it's a very, it's a very Shakespeare kind of thing to do. Um, uh, Shakespeare did that all the time, turn nouns into verbs. Um, but I would point out not only there, she's not just using Bardia's name as a verb. She's using Bardia's name as a past participle. Um, that their lives have been bardiad. Um, Bardia isn't just an action that is performed. It's an action that is performed to them. Their lives have been bardiad. Um, and now, at his loss, their lives have been unbardiad. Uh, and therefore made, uh, made, made desolate. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, Eric is defining past participle as an adjective referring to a current state as a result of the past action. Yes, and that past action was bardia. Right? That's the bardia verb. Right? Um, both of their lives have been profoundly bardiad. Right? Both of them. Um, for for both of these women, Bardia has been the chief central figure in their lives. Um, they have both lived richly Bardiad lives and are now unbardiad. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Yes, Ambrosius is recalling, of course, uh, it is true it is a particularly Shakespearean move to use um, a title as a verb, um, like kinged or queened, um, to be unkinged, for instance, um, uh, is uh, something that happens like in Richard II. Um, and, um, or, you know, to like in uh, Measure for Measure, you know, the Duke dukes it well lately, um, and that kind of thing. Um, Yes, so Ambrosius, I suspect um, that uh, the um, right she says unqueen me, doesn't she? Um, Orwell. Yes, and um, so we do. She has been Ansett has been wishing for her life to be unqueened, right? That Bardia could have been unqueened, had lived an unqueened life, right? Um, uh, but what what they really share again was how their life has been bardiad. Um Yeah, yeah. Just like Orwell has wished that Gloam could be ununguited. Yes, yes, I agree, Jackrabbit. Um, exactly. Um, yes. Anyway, okay. Um, I think it's important to note that the communication they share, this moment in which they do bond together, Orwell points out that it is not only, it is uncoincidentally a language only of sobs. We could not even begin to speak of him in words. That, in fact, had they tried to articulate aloud 
what they were saying or thinking. It would have unsheathed both daggers at once. Um, they would have reverted from kindred spirits, the only two castaways on the desolate island of their blank, unbardied life. The only two people. That moment, what they feel is their likeness to each other. That the other woman in the room is the only person on earth who can have any real understanding of what the other is feeling because they both loved him. But they can't say that or talk about it. They can experience it. They can feel it, right? They can feel that connection. But the moment you put that into words, the rivalry is there, right? They, they couldn't both have him. And they're both aware of that. And both of them feel that the other one had, you know, the best of him. Right? Um, there is no way. There is no alternate reality in which all three of them could have been satisfied. Right? Um, but without words, just experiencing the connection... The language. Um, we spoke a language which no one else in the huge, heedless world could understand. Um, they each understand each other in a way that nobody else uh, can understand. Um, can understand them. Um, this is such an unexpected moment. Ansett has been so hard from the beginning of this like as just as you guys were saying she has so plainly been um anticipating making the speech right have been uh wanting to say this for years and it's just it's been pouring out it's been harsher and harsher all the time and for this sudden shift um this sudden shift um the unexpected connection between them uh, this is it's just this is such a beautiful and unexpectedly beautiful moment in the middle of this okay then why did you not tell me a word from you would have sufficed or are you like the gods who will speak only when it's too late this is Orwell to Anset right why didn't you tell me that I was wearing him down. Um, notice how she is, once again, in her traditional posture, um, how she's here comparing Ansett to the gods. Are you like the gods who will speak only when it's too late? Right? Um, Tell you, she said, looking at me with a sort of proud wonder. Tell you? And so take away from him his work? which was his life? For what's any woman to a man and a soldier in the end? And all his glory and his deeds? Make a child and a dotard of him? Keep him to myself at that cost? Make him so mine that he was no longer his? And yet he would have been yours. But I would be his. I was his wife, not his doxy. He was my husband, not my house dog. He was to live the life he thought best and fittest for a great man, not that which would most pleasure me. You have taken a Lardia now, too. 
He will turn his back on his mother's house more and more. He will seek strange lands and be occupied with matters I don't understand, and go where I can't follow and be daily less mine, more his own in the world's. Do you think I'd lift up my little finger if lifting it would stop it? And you can... you could... you can bear that? You ask that? Oh, Queen Orowal, I begin to think you know nothing of love. Or no, I'll not say that. Yours is queen's love, not commoner's. Perhaps you who spring from the gods love like the gods, like the shadow brute. They say the loving and the devouring are all one, don't they? Oh, oh, gosh. The stab of that paragraph, right? I mean, can you even imagine? Divine surgery indeed, right? That is a deep, deep cut of the knife. Um, yours is queen's love, by which she means God's love. It's divine. It's not human, right? Um, you don't think like a human being thinks. Um, and of course, you caught the turn there. I, th I think I saw several of you catching that. We're talking about Bardia, and then we're talking about Ilaria, her son, which means we're also suddenly talking about Psyche, right? Did you catch? And, and Orwell sees it, right? Orwell sees it. First, yeah, Eric, I want to I acknowledge that. Um, it's a very generous interpretation by Ansett, right? She could say, you know nothing of love, because you are a selfish, horrible narcissist, right? She could go there, but she doesn't go there, right? Instead, she kind of gives her the benefit of the doubt, right? Yours is queen's love, not commoners. You're, you obviously exist on a whole other level from us because you don't think like normal, uh, normal people think, right? Um, yes, Curious Chance, you're exactly right. It, we begin here with Orwell attempting weekly um, to compare Ansett's actions to the gods' actions. And we end this passage with Ansett uh, thoroughly, uh, with horrible insightfulness, skewering Orwell with that same accusation. Um, but, but let's, let's build back up to that. Just like she reacts with a kind of incredulity, which should remind us of Psyche. Um, when Psyche was forced to say things like, I begin to think you know nothing of love. Right. Um, knew nothing not only of the love that she did, in fact, know nothing of and have no experience of, that is sexual love, marital love, right? Um, relationship with a husband. Orwell was, in fact, ignorant of that, right? But it became clearer and clearer that she was ignorant of even the kind of parent love that she prized and prided herself on with Psyche, right? Um, but again, the, incredul the incredulity of that second paragraph here should be very familiar. Tell you? Tell you? 
how could you even suggest again it's like psyche's incredulity when she um when orwell says that she should um hide it from her husband like she should break his will and conceal it from him right um tell him and take away from him his work and all his glory and his great deeds make a child and a dotard of him as if like basically Orwell says that Ansett had at her had in her power the ability to reclaim Bardia if she wanted him which it sounds like she did right I mean, she's, she's been saying all these resentful things about how the queen worked him to death and how he should have been given over ten years ago, right? And so Orwell says, well, why did you just say something, right? If you had said, like, by the way, queen, um, um, dear queen, uh, you're totally killing Bardia. Uh, and if you keep this up, he's going to, like, die young. So um, please send him into retirement. Um, first of all, I think that Orwell, how would the queen have responded to that? Really? A word from you would have sufficed? All Ansett had to do was send her a note and she would have been like, oh, yep, okay, never mind, I'm done with Bardia forever. Bologna, as I used to say to my kids. Um, no way. No way. Um, uh, it's not only, it's not only that Ansett would never have done it, it's that Orwell would never have agreed, Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but even to think that Ansett would do that, she's missing the point, right? And again, notice the, the dynamic there. Remember when Ansett shut up? The line she wouldn't cross? The line she wouldn't cross is to insist on things for her own sake. She was very ready, right, uh, to speak the truth about Bardia's situation. Um, she wasn't going to just complain for herself. Oh, why couldn't I have had more of him, right? Um, and she's like, hey, I, I, I would never even have wanted that. For him, against his will, to be forced home because I asked for him? Make a child and dotard of him? Right, He was my husband, not my house dog. He was to live the life he thought best and fittest for a great man. Um, she's, she doesn't want to tame him. She doesn't want to domesticate him. Um, she doesn't want to keep him as her pet. Um, and then, though she, Ansett, cannot possibly understand the relevance of this. She then launches into this other example about how the queen has been taking her son, Elerdia, away, giving him more and more responsibility in the court. You have taken Elerdia now too. He will turn his back on his mother's house. He will seek strange lands, be occupied with matters I don't understand and go where I can't follow, be daily less mine exactly what was happening with Psyche, right? This is the shift in the middle of this passage. All the, I mean, This has to be just echoing in, in Orwell's ears, right? As 
Ansett, who really is a mother, describes this experience of losing her child, her child going away and leaving her, exactly as Orwell refused to let Psyche do. And she ends with, do you think I'd lift up my little finger if lifting it would stop it? Do you think I would interfere with that? Because she loves her son, she wants that for her son. It's appropriate for her son, for her child, to grow and become his own and live his own life. Is it, as Psyche called it, a kind of death? Yeah, it is. He's no longer her little child. I think all of us who have had kids leave the house have experienced this. I remember that. I remember. I remember sitting in my car on the curb, preparing to drive away from the college where I had just deposited my son. And I, I didn't think of it in these terms at the time, but in retrospect, um, feeling that death, the death of that relationship. It would never be the same again. Um, but you want that for your kids. That's meant to happen. That should happen. Yeah, it's a kind of death and a kind of birth. Yes, exactly. Um, um, exactly. Ma uh, Maureen, you're right. Um, Maureen, is, uh, Maureen points out that Ansett is saying, do you think I would lift my little finger if lifting it would stop it? And she's saying this to the woman who stabbed herself in an attempt to stop it, in Psyche's case, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and we know that Orwell hears it, right? We know and Orwa, like Ansa doesn't know. She doesn't know about Psyche. She doesn't know that whole thing. She doesn't know anything about that. She doesn't know, have any idea how close to home what she's saying about Alaridia here is hitting, um, uh, is hitting Orwal. And you could, and you can bear that? Orwal expresses wonder when she sees Ansit do what she always failed to do. Yes, she would have, if she could have, snapped her fingers, lifted her little finger, right, to make Bardia hers. Um, even if it were like making him her house dog in her little fantasies. He was domesticated, subjugated to her desires in almost exactly that way. Right. Made into a little automaton version of Bardia to go along with the automaton version of, of Psyche in her imagination, right? Um, she couldn't bear it with Psyche at all, right? Um, she is marveling, Maureen, I agree, at how much stronger Ansett is showing herself to be. Um, you ask that? Ansett can't even understand. 
As a mother of nine, she can't even understand how Orwa would be asking this question. I begin to think you know nothing of love. And of course, we've been thinking that for some time, right? Um, she is like the shadow brute. They say the loving and the devouring are all one. And of course, that's where she began the conversation, pointing out that she, the queen, had devoured Bardia, that her love had devoured him, that she loves, she is like the shadow brute. Um, that ugly, hideous thing that must be hidden in the dark because it does not dare show its face, remember? Just like her behind her veil. Um, woman, said I, I saved his life. Thankless fool, you'd have been widowed many a year sooner if I'd not been there one day on the field of Ingarn and got that wound which still aches at every change of weather. Where are your scars? Where a woman's are when she has borne eight children? Yes, saved his life. Why, you had use for it. Thrift, Queen Orwal. Too good a sword to throw away. Fah, you're full-fed, gorged with other men's lives, women's too. Bardia's, mine, the foxes, your sisters, both your sisters. It's enough, I cried. The air in her room was shot with crimson. It came horribly in my mind that if I ordered her to torture and death, no one could save her. Here's the king. Right. Now, um, uh, uh, what's that phrase from Measure for Measure? There her father's grave did, other, did utter forth a voice. Um, yes, yes. Um, this, I think, I think, is the first time that Ansett is... Um, has gone a little too far, I think, is being a little bit unfair to Orwal. Um, but she's only being unfair to her in the same way that Orwal has been unfair to the gods all along. Um, this is exactly the kind of thing um, to use people and then throw them away, uh, to gorge yourself with the lives of others, um, uh, to treat to treat people only for the use that you have for them, to feed yourself fat on them. Um, it's not everything else that everything else that Ansett has said to Orwell has been fair, has been true, um, uh, really penetratingly true. This is not quite. This is not. This does not actually match Orwell's attitude, exactly. Or rather, it's um, it kind of does, uh, but only in a sort of unkind exaggeration, um, uh, in in one sense. But um, uh, yeah, um, but again, it helps to highlight. The parallel between Ansett, Ansett's protestations, Ansett's speaking truth to the queen and saying things like this, and Orwell speaking truth to the gods and saying the things that she was saying. Um, this is unfair 
but no more unfair than uh, remember the like I don't remember the whole sentence, but like there is neither toad, serpent, nor scorpion more pestilent to man than is than are the gods. That kind of statement, right? Um, uh, harsh, right? And you know, with her experience, you can see where she's coming from, and yet it's not perhaps not quite not quite true. Um, and yes, uh, Corey agree. It minimizes Orwell's love. Um, yet still, she's right that even Orwell's loves have been selfish. Yeah, exactly. It's again. It's this is too harsh. It's it, this isn't quite fair. It's not quite right. Um, but um, but at the same time, not totally wrong either. Um, uh, This pushes her to the kingly wrath. And I think this has to be connected with this, the like uh, divine status, right? That Anset has been giving to Orwell here um, throughout this conversation. Um, when she speaks like the king, when she's kind of like channeling the king, right? It's almost like that's the divine part, right? Um, especially since the unfeeling cruelty of the gods and the unfeeling cruelty of her father have seemed to be paralleled, at least if not directly connected, um, in her own uh, in her own experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, we'll return to this soon in her dreams. Um, I think that's the end of what I had here. Um, okay, tell you what. Let's... Um, Let's end with that. Yeah, we got the aftermath. We'll do that next time. That's the end of the conversation. Um, we have her reflections on the conversation. Let's start with that next time as a way of transitioning from this really powerful scene that we've just been discussing. Um, we will then go from there to... That will lead us in a transition into the next thing that she raises as another example of how she was being operated on and that is her later interactions later in her life interactions with Ungit and the house of Ungit right so we'll look at some of those uh, her description of her participation in the ceremonial stuff uh, there in the house of Ungit um, and from there we'll begin looking at her dreams and visions uh, in particular the one about the encounter with her father which we're uh, almost transitioning into here with this uh, uh, with this last uh, um, with this last touch. All right, so um, yeah, there's not that much book left. There's a lot in it. Um, I definitely, you know, you can definitely read through to the end. I don't think we're going to get past chapter two next time. Um, I doubt we'll get into chapter three. 
Uh, I doubt we'll get so far as chapter three, but um, so certainly read through the second chapter of part two. Um, but um, also certainly feel free uh, to read uh, to read to the end. Um, uh, yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Um, I uh, I should be I should be here next week. I should have uh, a few Wednesdays in a row. Be gone the last the, at the very end of February, but we should have a another good month. We'll see how far we can get here towards the end. Um, thanks, everybody. Have a good night, and I will see you again next week. Bye now.